Food security is a daily challenge for millions of Americans, but the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated a myriad of issues for those same people and the stakeholders who work with them. Keeping America Fed is a podcast miniseries through which we'll look at those issues and how they're being addressed locally and at the state and federal levels. Today, we're talking with Jerry Henschey and Maria Boyle. Jerry is the Director of Nutrition Policy at FRAC, the Food Research and Action Center. Her work focuses on nutrition policies, such as increasing the healthfulness of nutrition programs necessary to reach the goals of eradicating domestic hunger and improving the nutrition and health of low-income individuals and families. Maria is a senior associate here at APT. She has over 20 years of experience working on programs, policies, research studies, and evaluations related to nutrition, food security, and food assistance programs. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Eric. We're happy to be here. Jerry, would you mind telling us a little bit about FRAC? Well, FRAC is the leading national nonprofit organization working to eradicate poverty-related hunger and hunger nutrition in the United States. Um, In this role, we do several things. We conduct research to document the extent of hunger. We look at the um, effects of hunger and try to look at their um, impact and effective policy and legislative solutions. And we monitor the implementation of laws. We're kind of what you think of as a watchdog organization. So we're always looking to see, you know, are we getting maximizing what the law intended? Are we getting maximum effect? And what kind of changes would we need uh, in terms of regulations, guidance, Q&A? What kinds of things work or don't work on the state and local level? How can we raise up those best practices? Um, and then we work with a whole series of partners. So we have partners, um, national partners and state and local partners. And then we have people who we consider our partners, of course, like all of you, who we look to for important information and research. Thank you. So appreciate that little shout out. And, and that means, though, that you're really well equipped to tell us about sort of the impact of uh, COVID on food security around the nation, right? So like, what are you seeing? Right. So the impact of uh, COVID on food security is really profound. So we're seeing unprecedented levels of food insecurity. And we have a number of different sources for that information. So we have a weekly survey that is going out through census pulse survey and that looks at food insufficiency so it has two questions the first question is are you worried you're going to run out of food and then the second question is something like you know have you run out of food and not had money to buy more so those two together constitute what ers calls food insufficiency some people have been working on um, extrapolations of that and that's what you actually usually see when you see food insecurity reported in the press And so that is an extrapolation of that food insufficiency number to make it a number which is closer to a kind of food insecurity. So there you see 23% across the board, you know, 29.9% for, you know, families with children. And then what we really see is highlighted is which we had always seen in all of the food insecurity data, but this really just shows the stark realities that very, very much higher rates of food insecurity for African-American families and individuals, for Hispanic and Latinx families and individuals. So, for example, African-American um, individuals with children have unprecedentedly high food insecurity rates during COVID. That's, you know, and it ranges each week, but 27, 28, you know, it's just kind of what you might have thought. But what it actually is, is 37, 38, 39%. So that's wow. a huge, huge high. And same thing with Hispanic Latinx families, 
37, it's been as high as 42% because um, mm. it ranges, it goes up and down during COVID. So just unprecedentedly high levels and heartbreakingly high levels of food yeah. insecurity. You know, you have a lot of different information, really, really helpful information, which is accompanied by a lot of information about, you know, um, people's employment status, whether they have insurance, you know, their mental health status, all those things, which are also things that we know are both really related to causing food insecurity, contributing to food insecurity, like employment status, loss of wages or loss of jobs during COVID-19, but then also the impact of food insecurity, right? So the impact of the mental health impact. So you're seeing much higher rates of mental health problems during COVID-19. And one of the factors in that is food insecurity. I mean, if you don't have enough food, that's depressing. So additionally, one of the things we really want to think about is, you know, what isn't being measured? So one thing that is not being measured is the food insecurity rates in the Native American populations. That would include across the board in the Native American population, but it would also include um, people who are living on tribal lands. So we already know that there's a very significant differential normally in food insecurity, much higher rates of food insecurity in the Native American population, but we don't have any specific measures of that now. So we can assume, and I think we would be correct in assuming that we also are seeing unprecedentedly high levels of food insecurity among indigenous peoples, but we don't have any research on it. You know, our summer EVT expansion project, two of the grantees are with tribal nations. So while we won't be measuring, you know, a lot of our summer EBT work, um, our initial study, this is our third round of evaluation work that we're doing on the summer electronic benefit transfer projects, uh, these demonstration projects. Um, we do have two grantees that are uh, tribal nations and we will be looking at uh, summer EBT implementation in, you know, in those tribal nation areas. We won't be measuring food insecurity per se, like we maybe have done in the past, but we will have a lot of interesting data that will be specific to um, you know, feeding children in tribal nations. Thanks, that's yeah. very helpful. I think it will be, you know, because it's a, it's, I think some of the interesting pieces of a lot of our summer EBT demonstration evaluation work has really been to show, you know, how this project can work in different areas. This focus will be on rural and very rural areas. So, and, you know, different types of populations than we've looked at in the past. So I think it will be really useful information. It's great that we're going to be able to help understand what's going to serve tribal nations and rural populations. Uh, what are some other projects and programs that are helping other populations in need of support? So some of what we're seeing as very important during COVID-19, of course, is the SNAP program, right? SNAP mm. is very, very, very important. And we're seeing huge increases in SNAP applications, an avalanche of SNAP applications, because people really need the help and they've lost their jobs. And so SNAP is there for people. We did get some waivers to make it easier. We're continually fighting on difficult proposals from this administration to make it harder to get on SNAP. So we've continued that. Um, but we are also looking for some changes in the next economic stimulus bill. Um, but we see that SNAP as an entitlement program and with the flexibilities that it has, it's very important. But in addition to that, 
we think that SNAP is, is chronically lowballing how much it's going to take people to buy a healthy diet. And really, the thrifty food plan is actually not enough in reality for people to buy, you know, a healthy diet most of the time. So we think that's important in trying to understand who got on SNAP during COVID-19 when it's, you know, as it's going forward, what are the facilitators and barriers? Why, why is it that some people in some places can get what they need and get on SNAP, but other people are still waiting in line to get on SNAP? So what's happening there? What's happening on the state level and the local level? And those are implementation issues as well as policy issues. So then for children, a really important program, of course, has been the school meals programs, school age care programs. And really, you know, the school people have been heroes, real heroes, because, you know, they started using the waivers for the summer food program, waivers for seamless summer, started using the summer food program. They could serve all kids, didn't just have to be enrolled kids, didn't have to just be school age, all the kids in the family. The parent or the guardian could come. You don't have to bring the kids. You pick up the meals. And actually, by the end of it, you know, you could pick up a whole week's worth of meals for your family so you didn't have to keep coming. So people perfected the system, which now is starting again with the new school year. Um, and so they really just were feeding the community and just cranking out those meals. Mostly, you know, you saw a lot of people coming to do what's called grab and go for the meals, coming to pick them up. But there were also a lot of places where people used the school buses and the bus routes to deliver the food mm -hmm. to people just That's to right. make sure that people had their meals. You know, so I think to understand, you know, how that could keep working is important. And some work was done on that. And one thing was clear, you needed to keep having these summer waivers. And just this week, so your podcast is very timely, just, <sighs> just, 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 just happened. Um, USDA said they were going to extend those summer waivers and some of the other waivers around the school age care um, till the <laughs> end of the year. And so just to give you an example of the difference between having the summer waiver and not, with the summer waiver, you can do everything that I just said the schools have been doing, right? Mm -hmm. You can give meals to all the kids. You know what? You can. You don't have to charge them, right? Okay, so if you don't have that waiver, then the schools have to only serve the kids who are enrolled, school-age kids enrolled. They've got to figure out who everyone is every time they give out the meals. They have to charge if the child's not free or reduced. Um, well, they have to charge if the child's not free. They have to charge reduced price kids who are in the reduced price category and free. That's problematic because you can be in the reduced price category and have to pay a lot of money mm -hmm. as, as, as it adds up to get a week's worth of meals, um, mm -hmm. money that people just don't have. Now the summer waiver is back. You've got kids in virtual school or real school, but you really still need those options because, like, so say kids are in virtual school. Same thing as it was before, right. right? They need it. But even if, like, say kids are there every other day, however they're doing it, like partial things, then they need, they need some help. Um, mm -hmm. So that's an example of with the school age. Now, on the community-based side, we also saw places like the YMCAs take up the summer waiver. So they mm -hmm. were also feeding kids. So the Ys, like, went to town. That's a community-based grab-and-go kind of model. Also really important. They also really needed the summer waiver. So a lot of child care shut down. But so there we see a real loss of meals. So if we think about what does it mean to lose those meals, how many meals were lost, 
So just to give you an example, we were talking to people from New Jersey and we were calculating all this stuff. So 1.7 million meals lost out of CACFP just in April, just in New Jersey. You know, Mm. like huge numbers of these healthy meals, which everyone had worked so hard to get the new standards for and everyone was like so proud of their meals. Well, that's it. The kids aren't getting them. So I guess part of the question there is, you know, what is the impact of that? Well, the impact is, you know, increased food insecurity because the families then have to somehow come up with the money to go to the store to buy the food to make those meals. And the likelihood of them being that healthy in these these economic circumstances are really much, much lower. So you get diet quality issues and food security issues. And Jerry, do you think pandemic EBT, you know, it helps with that and, you know, or addresses at least some of that uh, or head, you know, I don't I, I think we don't really know at this point. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Maria, if we don't know, what could we how, how do we figure this out? And, and Jerry, I guess that's like, is that a data hole we need to plug? So I think the interesting thing about pandemic EBT is that. If the children get it, there's no question that it will be impactful because we're talking about the value of the meals that they missed. So, you know, you should have like $125 per child, you know, per month. So that's going to have an impact. You know, what exactly the impact is, is very similar to the kind of study you're talking about for summer food, which for summer, the summer food UBT, it was $30 and $60. That's right. Look at the results of your study for $30 and $60 the impact on diet quality, the, actually the impact on food insecurity was substantial. If That's you right. have $125 per child, then it would be, there's no doubt that that's going to have a big impact. It'd mm-hmm. be important to know what it is because it relates to future disasters, but it also relates to the point I made earlier, which is that SNAP benefits are inadequate. And I think that this is a way of getting back to that point um, mm-hmm. about the SNAP benefits. So the other thing in terms of how does it, so if that is one set of thing. The other thing is the states had to come up with these complex plans to do something they had never done before right. uh, in a very quick amount of time. This whole thing was very quick, but people took, they had to realize, I mean, you can imagine that this wasn't even one agency trying to figure out what it was going to do. It was several agencies talking right. about data matching. And, you know, things that normally, if you were trying to make happen, you would say this is going to take three years, right? Because between all the MOUs and all the interoperability issues and all the politics, this is going to take three years. But they got it done. They all got it done. But they got it done in different ways. And some of the ways were much more effective than other ways. And so, actually, the people who did it later learned from the people who did it. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, Maria, I think it's very interesting to think about that. Absolutely. You know, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from, you know, for thinking about pandemic EBT, there's a lot we can learn from other EBT implementation that's happened in different ways across states, you know, both pulling from kind of existing programs, you know, that we've evaluated, as well as learning from you know, like you were saying, Jerry, some of these earlier states that implemented 
um, pandemic EBT, and then lessons were learned by some from those early states by the later states. And I think, you know, that gets into this whole need for sort of best practices, um, you know, templates available, technical assistance, that kind of, um, you know, that kind of piece so that, you know, uh, states, um, localities, communities are able to implement these projects and programs very quickly if they have sort of models that they can work from. I know we've done that kind of work um, over the CARES Act in terms of housing. Presumably that's something we can apply here as well. You know, what are some other ways we can look to, you know, plug holes, lessen the impact moving forward, capturing best practices? What else can we be looking to do? You know, I know there's a lot of this food security data coming out, but I think it would be really interesting to almost look at, you know, if we're talking about federal programs and this podcast too, but to look at sort of, you know, how have the gaps have been able to be filled and where are the gaps still existing? Like, okay, we have, you know, like Jerry, you were saying, all those CACFP meals missed just in, in New Jersey in one month. So, are there enough, is there enough coming from these other sources that are filling those gaps for families? And if not, you know, what's happening and, and then what needs to step in to, to help fill those gaps? And I feel like, you know, there could be a lot of data gathering and research that, you know, that, that could help with that. Apps developed a, um, you know, our data capture and service center, we've developed a, a COVID-19 assessment and tracking tool that's really been meant for communities to use to really try and collect some real-time data on, um, you know, on a variety of problem areas related to COVID-19. This includes food security and then can really help sort of inform decision-making uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, we do have that available and, you know, communities can pull out different questions, um, different parts of the survey that they want to use and, you know, it can help them sort of assess even where their, you know, where their families, where their communities are, are experiencing these continued food security gaps and maybe help them think about how to address them. How do people access that, Maria? How would people go about using that if they want to? Yeah, um, that is available. Um, that is available from APT and um, it's in a Tableau dashboard. It's something that we're able to offer our clients. So one thing that uh, we might want to talk about is food insecurity among um, senior people, right, in the U.S. So right. we think about food insecurity among people who, you know, are 65 years or older, then what we see is that the food insecurity rates have doubled. Now, they're a lot lower, actually, than the overall population, but they've doubled and they're unexpectedly high. So what are some of the things that, um, that the federal government did, right, in the, you know, Families First and the CARES Act? thing they did is they really increased the amount of money that they were going to put into the um, your feeding programs. How do we know that these, you know, so this kind of switch in the focus of the programs, how do we know that that's addressing those large numbers of food insecurity in the population? How can we make that link with our research, right? We have a group at App that's trying to, you know, get together. We have a lot of kind of older adult health evaluation research experience, TA, um, for different programs. But I think from my perspective, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, that that's an area that does need quite a bit of research, um, especially given the, you know, the older adult population that's really been hit hard by right. COVID-19 and has a harder time getting out and shopping 
and accessing food. And I wonder that like is is as we're doing evaluations of each of these kinds of programs or each of these kinds of you know, projects that are attempting to address or alleviate food insecurity in that way, do we have some really good measures of food insecurity? Are we looking at some impact evaluations to really be able to make those connections, associations, or even say something about the impact of, you know, of these changes in the programs? I think that's that's exactly right, because I think your point about what are the lessons we've learned is absolutely crucial, because going forward, what does this mean? What does it mean about right. policy and practice in these federal food programs um, if COVID continues or if something That's like right. COVID comes back? But also, what does it mean uh, just if we return to just our regular lives, right? We, mm -hmm. we start with, we go back to the way we lived before. And I'll give you one example. The WIC program, which we've mm -hmm. talked um, about, you know, that we have all these federal food programs. The WIC program is very important. There is a waiver because of COVID-19 that said that you could um, enroll people, certify people, give them services over the phone. It waived the requirement for them to come in in person, right? Very, very important. So what, what did we learn from that? What do we know? Right. You know, just from people telling us that this makes life way easier for people, not just in COVID-19, but generally. So what, do we, what does that say to us about using client-facing technology in the WIC mm -hmm. program moving forward? How can we maximize that? That's right. And what can we pull from what we've learned to really sort of implement more broadly um, and use more broadly when, if, if and when we're back to normal circumstances at some point? Well, that sounds like a good stopping point. Jerry, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks yeah, for thanks. having me. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jerry. It was great <laughs> to talk to you, as always. It was nice seeing you again, Maria. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Maria, what do we have coming up next month? So next month is the third podcast in our series. We'll be talking about uh, consumer perspectives, looking at consumer purchasing patterns, as well as consumer uh, consumption patterns, and talking about whether there have been any changes in those as a result of, of COVID-19. Great. Until then, thanks for joining us.